If you would then turn with us to the book of Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans chapter 1. As we continue our verse-by-verse study of this book, just to remind you of the big picture, our goal is to get through chapter 2 by April or May and then move to a study of the life of Abraham uh, at that point. Um, But right now we are in Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. If you're using a uh, Bible... Uh, From the seats in front of you, you'll find this on page 939. And here's what our God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, says to us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and reptiles. Our focus this morning is verses 22. And 23, let me briefly sum up what we have already seen. Number one, the big point is that we need the gospel because without it, we're under God's wrath. Number two, the reason that all people are naturally under God's wrath is that we have wickedly chosen to suppress the truths about Him that deep down we know. We suppress the truths that that deep down we innately know that there is a God and that He exists and that He's worthy of our honor, but we suppress that in our hearts so that we can get by without honoring Him, so that we can get by without showing gratitude to Him, but can live our own lives the way we want to live them and not feel guilty about it. And third, our... Ridiculous, wicked, tragic behavior of trying to suppress the fountain of living waters and instead of trying to find meaning and purpose and joy apart from God has had devastating consequences on the human race. Paul mentions four. Futile thinking, darkened hearts, foolishness, and idolatry. And this morning, we come to the last two, foolishness and idolatry. Paul actually mentions foolishness three times in this section. Verse 21, he speaks of their foolish hearts. Verse 22, they became fools. And then later, down in verse 31, he uses the word foolish to describe all people. 
And this word is a, is a rich word. It has a depth of meaning to it. How would you describe mankind being given the wondrous blessings of God, being made His special creation, being given paradise and the privilege of worshiping Him, and on top of that, having God's promise that He would forever care for us and then willfully choosing to give all of that up. How would you describe seeking to suppress the most glorious, wonderful, awe-inspiring truths in the world so that we can try and find joy and purpose and meaning in other things that aren't God and won't last. How would you describe that? Sad? Dumb? Tragic? All of that is summed up in this word, foolish. And yet notice what Paul says. As all mankind has become foolish... We have been claiming that we are wise. All mankind, by our choice to, to seek to suppress the things of God so that we can live our own life, I don't want to think about the true God. I don't want to think about His ways. I want to live my own life, my own way. I want to be self-centered and self-absorbed and live for the things of this world. That choice on our part is foolish. And yet as we make that choice, we call ourselves wise. Imagine us, as Jeremiah said, choosing to ignore a fountain of water that never ends, that always gives life, that constantly refreshes, but instead saying, I don't want that. I want to try by my own might to get water out of this broken well to sustain me. And we're going to call going to the fountain that never ends foolish, and we're going to call going to the broken well wise. Friends, that is the teaching that we imbibe in our very souls, in our culture, every day. Today we are told it is wise to leave behind those old-fashioned doctrines and morals. It is wise to encourage homosexuality or bisexuality, or any other form of sexuality. It is wise to allow mothers the right to abort their babies. It is wise to turn to science, which, by the way, comes to us through scientists with their futile thinking and their darkened hearts, and to build our lives upon that instead of that which has been revealed to us by God. Those things are called wise. You know what's unwise according to the world's standards? It is unwise for husbands to seek to be the leaders of their homes. It is unwise for wives to submit to their husbands. It is unwise for families to discipline their children, certainly unwise to spank them. It is unwise to tell people they're sinners. It is unwise to do anything that might hurt their self-esteem. It is unwise to live your life for a God and a Bible rather than living your life for yourself. That is unwise according to the message of the world around us. You see, many think that they walk in wisdom when in fact they walk 
as fools. All of us in this room at one time was a fool. Here's the ironic thing. It's only when we admit that we're fools and turn to God that we are wise. The wisest thing we could ever do would be to admit that we are not wise and turn to God to teach us true wisdom. Those who think that they are wise in and of themselves cannot have God. Jesus came to save the foolish. Those who know they don't have the answers. Those who know that in their own hands they'll mess their life up and they'll mess up the lives of others. Those are the people that Jesus came to save. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, to, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Those who think they are wise in and of themselves, who think that they can make the right decisions, that they can desire the right things, that they can sculpt the plan of their life as they want to, and it turn out well, those are the people who are not yet ready to know the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. It is only when we reach the place when by God's grace we see clearly I can't do this. My desires are for all the wrong things. My plans, they they don't work out. I need Christ. Only He can teach me true wisdom. All humanity has plummeted into foolishness. We live in a world of insanity. But we think we're wise. And only when by grace we see that we're foolish and turn to Christ do we begin to find real wisdom. So, we've seen three tragic consequences of our choice to try and and suppress the truths about God and not honor Him, not give thanks to Him, but live for other things. And now we see the fourth consequence. And Paul spends quite a bit of time here. Idolatry. You see it in verse 23? Everybody look at verse 23. Let's read it together. Verse 23 says that mankind has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and reptiles, or creeping things. God has placed it into the heart of all people to be worshipers. We were created, you, you were created to be a worshiper. So when we reject the Creator, 
you will, by necessity, find something else to worship. We do not simply suppress the truth about God and worship nothing. Rather, we suppress the truth about God and choose not to worship the Creator, but we will find something or some things in creation then to worship. We look for substitutes to give our lives purpose, meaning, and joy. We lower our sights and try and find something in this world that we can devote ourselves to. Now compared to the true God, these are always petty things. Anything that you worship with your life other than God is petty. It is not worthy of your love and devotion and honor. It's not worthy of your faith and confidence. If you live for anything other than God, you waste your life. But idolatry is rampant. One theologian said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. We can make idols out of anything. We're good at it. You want to know something human beings are good at? We are good at this. We can take anything and make it a God. I can think of a hundred illustrations, but I'm going to read you one that I came across this week that I thought was just an example of how we can make anything a God. I came across this article from the Times of London which talks about a new soda that's being sold in India. And here are some quotes from the article. Does your Pepsi lack pep? Is your Coke not the real thing? India's Hindu nationalist movement apparently has the answer. A new soft drink made from cow urine. The bovine brew is in the final stages of development by the Cow Protection Department of the RSS, India's biggest and oldest Hindu nationalist group. The drink is the latest attempt by the RSS, founded in 1925, 8 million members, to cleanse India of foreign influence and promote its ideology of Hindutva, or Hinduness. Hindus revere cows, and slaughtering them is illegal in most of India. Cow dung is traditionally used as a fuel and a disinfectant in villages, while cow urine and cow dung are often consumed in rituals to purify those on the bottom rings of the Hindu caste system. Deep down in the heart of all people is this sense that we are impure and need to be made clean. There is only one who can make us pure. There is only one who can bring us forgiveness of sins and a new heart. But rather than turning to the true God, people will turn to anything, even a soda made out of cow urine. Now that's just one form that idolatry takes. There is a proneness to idolatry in every human heart. Here's the question for you. What form is this taking in your life? Where other than God are you looking for joy, purpose, and meaning? Have you thrown down your idols and come to worship Christ alone? 
And even when we're saved and we do renounce our idols and the things of this world and you say, Christ, you alone are worthy of my worship and I'm going to follow you and live for you. Even then, the rest of our lives on this earth are spent in a process of weeding the idols out of our hearts. As we, as we grow in Christ, as we go through the good days and the bad days and are sanctified and changed, we're in this process of, of discovering new idols and throwing them down. Discovering new idols and casting them down so that we can worship Christ alone and be pure. Why is it that our hearts are so prone to idolatry? Well, think about this. What is it that God created us to find in Him? I've mentioned three already several times. Purpose, meaning, joy. Could add glory, honor, Dignity, peace, real, abundant life. We were created to desire those things and we were created to find those desires met in God. So that in Him, we find our desires met, we are satisfied, He is glorified. We call it paradise. It's perfect. But when we try and push God out of our lives, when we try and pretend that He's not there, we then find ourselves with a whole bunch of needs and a whole bunch of desires that are now unmet. And we look to all sorts of things in creation to now try and meet those needs that God exists to meet. Be careful. I don't like the way I just said that. I don't want you to think that God solely exists to meet your needs. We exist for Him. But in His wonderful providence, He is the one who meets our deepest needs. But when we suppress Him, and when we say we don't want you, and so we're going to turn to the things of this world, what what do people turn to? We can turn to anything, but there are some things that get looked to more often. We look to money. Or our work. We look to sensual pleasure or entertainment. We look to our families or to some social cause. We look to to obtaining a house or obtaining a car. We look to a a hobby or a a sport. And all of these things are, are fine in and of themselves until we take them and we try and find our purpose and meaning and joy in them and then they have begun to take the place of God. And they will never fully meet the needs of our hearts because our hearts are eternal and those things are temporal. If we have made those things our God, there will be a day when they are gone and we are left godless before the throne of God. Because we chose to refuse the wondrous glory of the true God. And instead, we chose to treat anything and everything as better than Him. We have broken the greatest and most fundamental commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And we will be justly condemned. Very often, the teachings of the Bible 
and modern psychology clash. The gospel of modern psychology is typically the gospel of self-esteem. Not esteeming God as we were created to do, but esteeming ourselves. And the self-esteem gospel creates self-centered, arrogant, confident in myself kinds of people. Whereas the Christian gospel creates God-centered, humble, confident in my God kinds of people. But that said, it is very interesting that here in Romans 1, we see a, a place in which the revelation of God and modern psychology agree. The way psychologists talk about people who have been traumatized sounds a lot like the way Paul is describing the human race in these verses we've been studying, verses 18 through 23. The same way that someone who experiences a traumatic event in their lives and the way that modern psychologists tell us that a person deals with that traumatic event is the same way that Paul says here, all mankind has dealt with the traumatic event of being fallen from God and estranged from Him. Let me quote from R.C. Sproul. See if this doesn't help you make sense now of all we've learned in verses 18 through 23. Sproul says about trauma, a traumatic experience generally involves something negative or threatening to the individual. In the case of Paul's analysis, the trauma is produced by encounter with God's self-revelation. For various reasons, God's presence is severely threatening to people. God manifests a threat to moral standards, a threat to the quest for autonomy, and a threat to the desire for concealment. God's revelation represents the invasion of light into the darkness to which people are accustomed. I think that's absolutely true. When people are living outside of Christ, the thought of being in the presence of the true God, the holy God, the God who cannot look on sin and who is altogether pure and righteous, the thought of being in His presence is a scary thought. They don't mind being in the presence of a Santa Claus kind of God. They don't mind being in the presence of a God who will just love them and forgive them and not make a big deal out of their sins. But the thought of being in the presence of the God of the Bible, the God who is, and the God who is holy, 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 mighty to judge, it's a God they'd rather not think about. And to think that we live every moment in His presence can send shudders down our spine. We are traumatized by our fall. We have deep issues in our souls that we don't want to deal with about the fact that we are cut off from God. There's been this great divorce between us and God, but we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. And we don't want to think about Him. Because He's so much bigger than we are. Psychologists tell us that when people experience a traumatic event, Often the first way they deal with it is by repression. What Paul here calls suppression. 
It's the reason why soldiers who've been to Iraq or who have been to Afghanistan often don't want to talk about some of the more intense moments of their service. Their response to those traumatic events is to try and repress them. Sproul says, Repression may be defined as the process by which unacceptable desires or impulses are excluded from the consciousness and thus being denied direct satisfaction are left to operate in the unconsciousness. Sam Storm says, The knowledge of God is simply unacceptable to the unbeliever who buries what he knows or at least camouflages it sufficiently that it no longer possesses a moral threat. In other words, we push those things away. We've had this traumatic event with God. We don't want to think about it. We're going to suppress it. We're going to repress it. We don't want to deal with it. How many people do you know who are outside of Christ who don't want to hear you talk about God? I don't even want you to invite them to church because just that invitation makes ungood feelings come up in their heart. Ungood is not a word, but you know what I mean. And what does all this have to do with idolatry? Psychologists have noted that once a person represses a truth in their lives, a trauma that they've experienced, they often begin to substitute what really happened with something easier to live with. So sometimes a person will just block out in their minds what happened so that they come to the point where they can't remember it anymore. Or they'll remember it, but their mind subconsciously will begin to remember what happened in a different way than it actually happened so that it's less painful. Or... More often than not, they simply try and drown out the memory with other things so that the memory can somehow get lost in the mix of other things. Well, this is what man has done concerning God. What R.C. Sproul says, what results from the repression is the profession of atheism, either in militant terms, or agnosticism, or a kind of religion that makes God less of a threat than He really is. I believe that's what most people have done, by the way. I think the way that most people deal with this deep down innate knowledge that we have been divorced from God by our own sin and that something is wrong, I think the way most of us try and deal with that, most who are unbelievers, is by coming to some kind of a religion that changes the true God to a false God. We don't want to deal with the holy, holy, holy God of the Bible who might judge. So what do I do? I create a new God and a false reality and a false understanding of Him and then I live cozily in there and hope the true God never puts His light in on my dark world. Hope truth never breaks in to the fake world I've created to live my life in. Some of you in this room might, I pray this morning, begin for the first time to have the true God break in to the fake world you're living in. I hope you understand why this is so important. And what what Sproul is saying, more importantly, what Paul is saying, more importantly, what God is saying in these verses. So many people claim to reject biblical Christianity on intellectual grounds. Well, I just don't believe it because... You know, scientific evidence says that we evolved and, and the earth is this many years old. And it just, you know, up here, I just, I just can't believe in a God. But the Bible tells us in these verses that the reason why people reject God 
and turn to other things is not mainly up here. It's in here. Man's heart by nature is at enmity with God. Listen, church, I'm getting to the most important point of the whole service. All of the intellectual reasons a person might give for not believing is just a cover-up for the truth. All people do know that the biblical God exists. See verse 20. They just don't want to admit it to themselves. So they try and come up with a substitution. A different view of reality that makes it easier for them to live without a guilty conscience. So I'm going to pour my life into watching golf and living my life for Saturdays when I can be out on the golf course and I'm going to put all myself into that and I don't want to deal with reality of God and me and eternity and heaven and hell. I'm going to drown all of that out in meaninglessness. Whatever I can find to do. So many of our family members and friends are trying to drown out God by giving themselves to meaningless activities, meaningless gods, in which they try and find purpose and meaning and joy. Here's the big implication. I'm, I'm going to say it again. We'll, we're, we'll finish it tonight. We'll finish it tonight. But here... Here's the big implication. I'll close with this. If you want to reach people with the... I'm sorry. If you want to reach people in such a way that they will truly be reconciled to God, what they need mainly is not to be convinced by your facts. They need to have their hearts changed by the gospel. Your facts can be absolutely right on and true. But if their hearts do not change, they will always be able to come up with reasons to reject your facts. The heart, the inner being of a person, not their mind, is what most needs changing. Change their heart and suddenly their mind will understand and will begin to see. And the logicalness, the reasonableness of God and Christianity will all of a sudden become clear and the lights will turn on. But until the heart changes, it won't happen. And you can debate creation and evolution all you want. You won't convince them. Good psychologists, we're told, will try and get through all the substitutions and all the repressions and will try and bring their patient back to the traumatic reality of what happened. And only when they get back to the traumatic reality of what happened can they help their patient begin to deal with it. The gospel is God's way of cutting through all the stuff to get us back to the central issue of the human heart. The gospel is the message by which God helps us deal with truly our deepest and greatest problem, Him. The fact that our unrighteousness has made Him our enemy. The fact that we deserve to be cast into hell. In the gospel, in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, 
God has dealt with our deepest problem. The gospel is not mainly about making you healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's about how God's just wrath against us has been dealt with by Christ on the cross so that we can be reconciled to God if we believe. This is the core issue of every human being and only the gospel addresses that issue. This is why the gospel and the gospel alone is the message we must preach and proclaim and sing and write and herald to all the world. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, every member that's here, every visitor that's with us, may no other message be more important to you than the message of the gospel. The gospel, when the Spirit uses it, will begin to rip the idols out of people's hearts because we will see in Christ the glory of God which makes everything else pale in comparison. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The cure for idolatry is Christ.